Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Ralph Nader, America's leading public interest lawyer and four-time independent presidential candidate, who discusses the shocking loss of Palestinian lives resulting from Israel's relentless bombing of civilian targets in Gaza. James Bamford, best-selling author, journalist, and documentary producer, who talks about his investigation into Israel's U.S. spy network, which aims to smash student activists who support Palestinian rights. And Belkis Turan, mother of Stop Cop City activist Manuel Tortuguita Turan, who was shot and killed by Atlanta police in January, sharing memories about her son during the mid-November Block Cop City protest. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Twenty years after Arab tribal militias, known as the Janjaweed, ransacked Darfur in western Sudan, cities in western Darfur are once again under attack. Mass killings have been reported in a refugee camp and in one regional capital. The capture of the cities, previously divided between the militias and the Sudanese army, is the most significant military breakthrough by the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, which is allied with several ethnic Arab militias. Sudan, a nation of 50 million people, is now divided between citizens loyal to government forces and those aligned with the RSF, stemming from a conflict that erupted into civil war in April. More than 10,000 people have been killed in the conflict thus far. The United Nations and the medical charity Doctors Without Borders raised warnings about the attacks, which could lead to deepening conflict and bloodshed between tribal groups. Since war broke out seven months ago, over 6 million Sudanese have fled their homes. UN refugee camps are jammed full and struggling to provide basic services. At the 1990 Second World Climate Conference, Britain's Tory leader, Margaret Thatcher, a trained chemist, called on Western nations to avoid creating a global heat trap and supported initiatives to invest in climate science. Today, the UK's Conservative Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, is rolling back policies to combat the climate crisis in favor of maxing out fossil fuel resources and exploiting Britain's largest untapped oil field in the North Sea. Critics blame Sunak, a former banker, for pandering to right-wing populists and leading an anti-green backlash across Europe. In recent months, Sunak has rolled back deadlines for transitioning to electric vehicles and has canceled the UK's planned expansion of their high-speed rail network in favor of more car-friendly investments. Sunak's approval of developing the Rosebank oil field in the North Sea came a day after the head of the International Energy Agency called on governments everywhere to speed up reductions in their dependence on fossil fuels. Greenpeace calculates the Rosebank oil field will produce as much carbon dioxide as the annual emissions of 90 countries. 
In next year's municipal election on March 19th, Chicago voters will have an opportunity to approve the Bring Chicago Home referendum question to tackle the city's housing crisis, which is backed by progressive mayor Brandon Johnson and a majority of the city council. The plan would create a dedicated funding stream for permanent affordable housing and wraparound services, all measures that experts say are crucial to make meaningful progress on addressing the nation's housing crisis and homelessness. Funding for the plan would be generated from increasing Chicago's real estate transfer tax rates on properties sold for over $1 million and a higher rate on sales over $3 million. At the same time, the transfer tax rate would be reduced on property sales below $1 million. Chicago's powerful real estate industry and the Chamber of Commerce both strongly opposed the measure. Two years ago, the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless estimated that over 68,000 Chicago residents experienced homelessness, including 40,000 people who doubled up with friends or relatives. In recent years, both Los Angeles and Denver pursued a similar path as Chicago by adopting tax increases on luxury properties to fund affordable housing and address homelessness. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. It's been more than six weeks since the Hamas October 7th terrorist attack that killed 1,200 Israeli men, women, and children and 240 civilians who were taken to Gaza as hostages. Since then, Israel's retaliatory bombing and ground assault in Gaza has killed more than 13,000 Palestinians, including some 5,500 children and 30,000 injured, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. Hospitals, schools, mosques, churches, refugee camps, and ambulances have all been attacked by Israel. At the same time, violence is exploding in the occupied West Bank, where over 200 Palestinians have been killed. 1,800 have been arrested by the IDF, and extremist Israeli settlers and soldiers have driven almost 1,000 Palestinian residents out of their homes in 16 communities. After weeks of negotiations, Israeli officials and representatives of Hamas agreed on a deal to free at least 50 of the 240 hostages taken on October 7th in exchange for the release of Palestinian women and children held in Israeli prisons and a four-day truce in Gaza. Your reporter spoke with Ralph Nader, America's leading public interest lawyer, four-time independent presidential candidate, and author. Here, Nader a longtime critic of U.S. policy toward Israel and Palestine, talks about the shocking loss of Palestinian lives resulting from Israel's relentless bombing of civilian targets in Gaza. After many uh, wars on Palestinians and regular destruction of life in the West Bank, Gaza smashing houses over the decades, kidnapping innocents to put them in Israeli jails so they can be used to extract uh, information from their extended families and control their extended families in uh, West Bank and Gaza. 
what we're seeing here is a, a textbook definition of genocide. It's not only the intent that was expressed by ministers in the Netanyahu coalition, which in effect on October 8th uh, stated no water, no food, no fuel, no electricity, no medicine, nothing. That is genocidal intent. And then it was followed up by a massive armed attack and invasion in response to the October 7th assault by Hamas, which a elderly Holocaust survivor in Israel told the New York Times it should never have happened. It was a complete failure of military intelligence by the Israelis that allowed this to happen. Anyway, the disproportionate attack is producing misery not seen for many, many decades in plain sight. 13,000 is a minimal figure. Uh, there are at least 20,000 to 30,000 dead so far. I mean, you can't deprive people of health care, critical transportation, blowing up amb ambulances, blowing up uh, schools, sheltering, uh, fleeing people, blowing up apartment buildings, mosques, churches, uh, clearly marked UN uh, installations, even the Palestinian Red Cross facilities, anything uh, in Gaza, of which Israel has longtime computer models, by the way, is a target. Uh, and it's justified by saying, well, there are Hamas fighters here and there, everywhere. Well, <laughs> that, that, that is just an excuse. Um, because, first of all, as a high government official experienced in the Middle East told Cy Hirsch, the Israeli invasion is a cakewalk. It, it's hardly getting any resistance because up against uh, one of the most modern superpower militaries in the world by land, sea, and air, what has Hamas got? Limited supplies of rifles, grenade launchers, and uh, a few anti-tank uh, missiles. So what's going on is Israel is trying to justify what they're doing by saying, we've got to destroy everything because Hamas uses them as human shields. Well, first of all, even if they were using them, of human shit, you don't blow up a hospital. You don't blow up a school. That's a clear violation of the ban on disproportionality under international law. And now there's a spread of diseases. Uh, infants who don't have their parents, nothing to take care of them. The elderly, the infirm, the people with cancer, no insulin for diabetics. And they're trying to say 13,000. Imagine if 20,000 bombs were dropped on Philadelphia, uh, all kinds of civilian areas, fires couldn't be put out because they blow up uh, fire prevention facilities. And uh, you think there'd only be 13,000 fatalities in Philadelphia? The Palestinians cannot even have their dead counted. They can't bury their dead. Uh, they're piled up, rotting under the sun, and eaten by stray dogs under the gaze of Israeli soldiers. They can't escape because it's an open-air prison surrounded by Israel under a 16-year-long blockade, which is illegal under international law. They can't even surrender because Israel won't even let them surrender because they don't want to take responsibility under international law for the POWs. So they're trapped, and they're fleeing 
under orders of the Israeli army and then being bombed while they're fleeing and they go down south for a refuge and they're being bombed down there. So what what's all this about? It's clearly the extremist right wing Netanyahu coalition long standing policy of a greater Israel, Erzatz Israel, they call it, in the Likud party, which means to take over the entire original Palestine, which means uh, the West Bank and Gaza. And how do you do this? By pushing people further out into the desert, maybe push them, try to push them into Jordan, into Egypt, which, of course, is going to resist that, uh, and create a vast destitute refugee camp of 2.3 million people, three-quarters of whom are children and women. So this is a level of savagery that's going to haunt the, the state of Israel for a long, long time. That was Ralph Nader, America's leading public interest lawyer, longtime critic of U.S. Middle East policy, and son of Lebanese immigrants to the U.S. His newest book is titled The Rebellious CEO. Find more analysis and commentary on the Israel-Hamas war by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Since the October 7th Hamas terrorist attack that killed 1,200 Israeli men, women, and children and abducted 240 civilians taken to Gaza as hostages, followed by Israel's indiscriminate bombing of Gaza that's killed more than 13,000 Palestinians, U.S. college campuses have become ground zero for incendiary and sometimes dangerous debate over this latest bloody Middle East war. Since October 7th, there's been an exponential rise in reports of anti-Semitic incidents and attacks across the country and on university campuses, accompanied by a parallel spike in hate incidents targeting Muslims, reminiscent of post-9-11 Islamophobia. Students and faculty members who vocally support Palestinian rights have been branded terrorist sympathizers, blacklisted for employment opportunities, and doxxed resulting in harassment and death threats. Palestinian solidarity groups and Jewish Voice for Peace, groups that have organized protests demanding a ceasefire in Gaza, have been suspended on many campuses. In a New Nation magazine investigation, Best-selling author, journalist, and documentary producer James Bamford uncovered an Israeli network of spies on U.S. college campuses with links to Israel's military intelligence agency, which has in recent years methodically targeted students and faculty who support Palestinian rights. Your reporter spoke with James Bamford, who summarizes his findings in his investigative piece titled Israel's War on American Student Activists. My last book, uh, which came out in January, uh, Spy Fail, I focused on foreign countries spying on the United States, and I was very surprised to find uh, actually about 25 percent of the book is dedicated to Israel spying on the United States uh, in many, many ways, and the U.S. does nothing about it. So one of the areas I uh, uh, discovered and uh, wrote about uh, more recently in The Nation magazine was this uh, little-known, almost unheard-of group uh, called Israel On-Campus Coalition. What they do is uh, they operate quite secretly. Uh, it's made up largely of former APAC people, 
what they do is they gather information from informants on campuses all over the United States, campuses that particularly where, where there's a lot of chapters of pro-Palestinian groups. So they have these informants on these uh, campuses that tell the ICC what, uh, what's going on, who's doing what. They give names of the students and the professors who are involved in these activities, and they give it all to this ICC group in Washington. Al Jazeera, a few years ago, did an undercover investigation, and they had a uh, this Jewish uh, guy that was going to play a major role uh, pretending to be a uh, pro-Israeli activist, and his name was Tony Kleinfeld. So he went up to the uh, ICC, and he talked to the head of the ICC, and and asked them what they were doing. And because they thought he was an activist for the uh, Israeli causes, they told him a lot of information about what was going on. And what they said basically was that uh, they collect all this information from their sources on the campuses. They have millions and millions of dollars worth of Israeli uh, technology to listen in on uh, all these chat groups and so forth. They said they had a budget of, I think, around $9 million. And uh, they have connections to the Israeli intelligence. And they made it sound like they were um, basically a military organization. And they formed this intelligence brief, and they share it with the Ministry of Strategic Affairs in Israel, intelligence organization. There's this information that comes from this group that's made up of basically spies on campuses, and uh, it's passed on to the Israeli government. It's horrible that's going on, and the U.S. does nothing about it. James, I'm wondering... In your research, what have you found is being done with this intelligence, this spycraft on college campuses? What is this group, Israel on Campus Coalition, and their counterparts in Israel and military intelligence, what are they doing with this information? Well, I'll give you one of the quotes. Uh, this is from the head of the organization, Jacob Fame. Uh, when Tony Kleinfeld, the undercover operative, was speaking to him on a hidden camera, he said, uh, we build up this massive national political campaign to crush them, them being uh, Palestinian supporters, uh, activist groups, and so forth. Uh, name and shame is what they call it. And they do it secretly. They also set up a nationwide troll farm. It was organized out of Tel Aviv, and they had these programs that uh, over a 1,000 uh, students pretty much had in the United States. They were linked to the Israeli troll farm, and the troll farm would be working in coordination with the uh, Israeli intelligence. So if there was some activist that was uh, protesting Israeli activity, a command would go out from the uh, head of the troll farm to the uh, all the members of the, uh, of the troll farm in the United States, and they would hide their connection to Israel, and then they'd all send nasty emails or uh, tweets or text messages, whatever, accusing these people of being um, uh, anti-Semitic or terrorists. Well, James Bamford, the Israel on Campus Coalition is really operating as a foreign agent, which, under my understanding, is illegal under U.S. law. What is the FBI's response to this information? I know they didn't read about it first in your Nation article. They probably don't about this for some time. What should the United States be doing about this? Like you said, yeah, I, I can't see why nothing is done about it except for the fact that there's enormous political pressure on the FBI. Um, I've been writing about these things for decades, so I have a lot of contacts within the FBI, particularly at the agent level. 
And uh, I talk to them all the time about it. And uh, they just are very, very angry because they know this is going on. And uh, they try to make cases against uh, these people, but they go nowhere. Uh, one of the people I spoke to was a former head of the counterintelligence division of the FBI. And he basically said, uh, yeah, we build cases, they go to the Justice Department, and nothing ever happens. That was James Bamford, best-selling author, journalist, and documentary producer, known for exposing secrets of the U.S. national security state. Find a link to his Nation magazine investigation, Israel's War on American Student Activists, and related information by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Over the long Veterans Day weekend, hundreds of opponents of the construction of a $90 million militarized police training facility in Atlanta came to the city to train for a nonviolent day of action called Block Cop City. The police facility is being jointly funded by the city of Atlanta and the Atlanta Police Foundation, which is made up of major corporations that have their headquarters or are significant presence in the city, like Home Depot, Amazon, UPS, Wells Fargo, and J.P. Morgan Chase. Protest organizers plan to march nonviolently to the Wheelawnee Forest, the site of the proposed facility, which is also the site of an occupation that lasted more than a year, where opponents camped in the woods to stop the project. On January 18th, one of the forest defenders, Manuel Tehran, known as Tortuguita, was killed during a police raid who claimed he shot first. Tehran's official autopsy showed he had no gunpowder residue on his hands, meaning he hadn't shot a gun, and the family's autopsy found he was sitting in his tent with his hands up when he was shot 57 times. During the mid-November protest, activists attempted to enter the forest and plant trees, symbolically replacing those cut down for the project, but police released tear gas to turn them away. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhus, who was at the protest, spoke with Belkis Tehran, Tortiquita's mother, who lives in Panama, but came to Atlanta to join the Block Cop City protest. Here she talks about her son, the online healing center she established to honor him, and her hopes for stopping the Cop City project. Manuel was called Tortiquita by the Moscogi tribe, because there is a warrior called Tortuguita. He was not very much uh, pleased with that name because he said, no, this was a warrior and I am a peaceful person. <laughs> so yeah, he, he was very peaceful. He, he wanted to do everything on peace. He was a very charismatic and a magnetic person. Where he was, he was a lot of energy, caring and loving to everybody around. It was very unfortunate, uh, his loss, but he left a legacy, which uh, I now promoting in my healing center, interactive healing center in Instagram, and um, around all these people that I like them to grow in the way that they can give good, 
good example to the society. That's, that's what we want. The family had an autopsy done, and then after that, the, the official autopsy was released that had been delayed for a long time. And it showed that he had no gunpowder residue on his hands, which kind of contradicts the official story that he shot at the police first, and then they shot him. So what is happening on the legal front? What's happening with your, the family's lawsuit? And what, what are you seeking? What are you trying to get? Well, we are trying to get the truth, and I don't think he shot anybody. They can say anything, and they can build any lies around his image, but I don't believe. Simple as that, I don't believe. So we are trying to get the truth, if it's possible. Uh, our lawyers are suing them. I really don't have any clarity about each step uh, because I don't want to get involved in the legal procedures, you know. But I know that they are very confident and they are trying to, to do their best. You're, you're here now. Uh, you said you're on a tourist visa. You're back in Atlanta. There was a march today, a nonviolent march to go back into the forest and actually to plant trees. We just learned that it's over and they're safe and they were not arrested. I'm not sure if that was true of everyone, but what is your role here this week? Well, I'm a pacifier, pacifist. I like to heal everybody. I like to give my oils to everybody, relax them because there is a lot of excitement, you know, like um, it can be good or it can be bad because when you confront dark energy like they have, so your dark energy, energy that we have, all of us has, can engage. So my, my role as a mother and as a healer is to avoid that. For me, it's not a war. For me, it's a, a transition point. We are going from this uh, energy to a better energy because everything is vibration. I believe that. You have to love your, your neighbor as yourself. So base it on that uh, thinking, we are doing all this. I love you, you love me, and we care each other. I care for you, that you are not engaging in um, negative uh, attitudes, and you are loving me, and that I am safe. So I am very happy with today. Today was a, for me, was a win. The point is to make, make the government and the system to understand that we are here and we are going to change the system. That was Belkis Tehran, mother of Manuel Tortiquita Tehran, a stop cop city activist who was shot and killed by Atlanta police in January. Learn more about Atlanta's Stop Cop City campaign by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed 
by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WYAP in Clay, West Virginia, WDRT in Viroqua, Wisconsin, KFUG in Crescent City, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. <laughs>